Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. This is, of course, Carlo. And uh, today we have a, a special treat. We're going to be... We can't seem to stop talking about these damn books. Uh, we're, we're, we're still in our year of the new sun. Uh, this is just... We're going to do a little uh, recap, post-mortem of Shadow of the Torturer. And um, I decided that uh, we, we would bring along uh, Jeremy Greathouse once again, because on top of being a Wheel of Time scholar, apparently he's a Gene Wolfe studier. Uh, is that correct? <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, <laughs> uh, that feels like an accurate way to describe it. Yeah, I've I've read a lot of Gene Wolfe. I think it's I think I'll, I'll say that. I don't know if I want to give myself any further like aspersions or uh, aspirations. That yeah, like I, I've read yeah. it a lot. I've read a lot yeah. of Gene Wolfe. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, you you, you can't you, you can't really read a Gene Wolfe interview. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe interview, <laughs> as the saying goes. Um, and, and of course, uh, we have Kurt along with us. Uh, hey, Kurt, how you doing? Hey, Carlo, I'm I'm doing great. All right, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, and, and because we, we, we have, we're, we're taking a small pause, if you will, uh, to, to, to let you decide whether you want to continue the journey <laughs> along with us. Uh, we know that the road is not easy. So, uh, we, we wanted to just maybe revisit some stuff and just talk a little bit more about Shadow of the Torture. We just needed an excuse, I guess, or maybe I did. And I, and I got these, these two guys to come along with me. So, all right. So Jeremy, um, tell me about your, um, as we like to call him here, Gene Wolf, uh, tell us about your experience with, uh, Gene Wolf. When did you first <laughs> meet this X-Man, uh, who also seems to write uh, rather fascinating, compelling, yet somewhat, um, puzzling novels? Yeah, I don't um, remember exactly how I first heard about Gene Wolfe. I probably read about uh, him on like a forum or something when I was in high school and sort of just trying to kind of get a sense for the broader science fiction universe outside of my dad's collection and like random books I had found and used bookstores and stuff. Um, but I, I, I remember being familiar with or knowing about The Fifth Head of Cerberus as this like really cool novella that everybody should read from way back. Um, and so I tracked a copy of that down. It's like collected in, in an, uh, an omnibus of the novella. And then there's like a couple of associated novelettes about the same worlds, although completely different characters. Um, 
And I read those and I was like immediately transfixed by it, even though I didn't understand what I was reading at all. I was <laughs> profoundly confused, but in a really like compelling way. Um, and since then, I've I've been a bit of a Gene Wolfhound. Like I just every once in a while, I get into a mood where I'm like, I need to read something kind of weird that I'll definitely have to read at least two or three times before I can make any sense of it. Um, and then I'll track down a Gene Wolf book. A Gene Wolf hound, you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Profoundly confused, but in a compelling way, certainly sounds like a familiar experience to what I've been through over the last the last several uh, several weeks or the last couple months. Um, yeah, it's a yeah. I, it's it's I, so I'm I came into all this uh, a a complete virgin to uh, Gene Wolf, and I had only really heard about him via people in you know the Podside Discord and and people like Carlo and Pete mentioning him in passing. Um, and it seems like there seems to be a real uh, a real Wolfian renaissance going on, surprisingly, over the last, I don't know, the last year or so, it seems like. All of a yeah. sudden, people are talking about him more. Um, but I have I was just, like, immediately taken. Like, well, actually, you know what? That's not true. The first chapter of Shadow of the Torturer, I wasn't totally on board with. And I think it's because, in a weird way, it's, like, a very active chapter compared mm. to like most of the rest of the book it's it was very straightforward i was like oh okay it's, it's going to be kind of like a pulp inflected sort of you know people are fighting and struggling and then immediately it's like no it's not that at all um <laughs> yeah. and i mean i've only read you know but i i guess i guess it's i guess it's a bit longer than a novella but it's not quite you know a modern novel length um and i'm i'm fully taken with just his style and and i've been reading interviews with the man and and you know building a little uh, like a list of of other stuff uh to read it's just he's just a really i don't know he's just a compelling writer it's it's yeah. kind of like it if i i it it feels like it has reawakened in my brain like what i really enjoyed about reading sci-fi and fantasy like as a teenager and like a like a young adult in a way that most stuff that i've read recently hasn't so yeah so it's interesting that you say that there's like a gene wolf renaissance going on because there definitely is uh to the point where like worldcon this upcoming year is having a panel or at least there's a panel like they're trying to recruit people on um that's just talking about gene wolf and i'm trying really hard to get on that panel Ooh. uh but it's, I, th I think, I have a theory that th this is because Wolf is uh, a type of writer that is increasingly rare, which is like a, a, a person who is style and tone forward. Um, mm -hmm. Like, yeah, Severian's a really interesting character. The world he's creating is fascinating, but he doesn't really care if you understand the world he's creating or Severian as a character beyond how that kind of adds to the like headspace he wants to put you in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's how like every Gene Wolfe book I've read has been where it's like, you can, you can just stop worrying about what's happening in the story and you can still have a great time reading it. Cause the writing itself is carrying you along and like the atmospheres that he creates is, are just so like interesting and like uh, immersive which I I can't think of anybody. Well, that's not true. Um, Brian Catling, who's actually like a visual artist, he wrote this series called The Vore, which is about like the a German colony being that's been built in Africa near the Garden of Eden, and like loggers are gradually uh, <laughs> cutting trees down from the edges of the Garden of Eden. Anyway, that's another book that's like that. But other than that, I I can't think of anything that I've read that's been published in the last like 
15 years that the feels o- like a Gene Wolfe book. The only thing that comes to mind that was a similar experience for me is um, the uh, Jean Le Flambeur novels by uh, Hanu Ranjinyemi. Um and it's he he writes in a it's it's not nearly as far in the future. It's it's you know it, he's he's kind of writing like the the absolute outer edge of like like near future sci-fi like mm-hmm. like it's 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 right before things start slipping into like ultra tech i suppose you you would say so like there's still you know things are still clustered around earth it's mostly in our solar system things are recognizably our culture but they're rapidly trending outward uh, from there. And, and he, I believe, is like a physicist. And the interesting thing is that he really makes no effort to explain anything about how anything works. Um, yeah. And the setting in his books is very like conceptual where like almost almost everything runs on basically like duplicated human minds called Gogols. Um, and, and so there's, there's these kind of like Gogol traders who steal human minds and make copies of them. And they get organized in these like giant clans of like the most successful minds. There are literally millions of copies of one, one mind and they form these vast like, like empires, but, but not, but much like Gene Wolfe, this isn't really explained or laid out at, at, at any point. You kind of have to just like, it just drops you into it. Um, I think Wolf gets to the, saying this sounds bad, but he gets to the point of like the story a lot quicker. Like mm-hmm. I haven't mostly felt myself flailing in, in Wolf the way I, I did in some of uh, Ryan Yemi's writing, but, but there is that element of like, I don't, it, it's much more concerned with building out a world and a feel than it is of like making sure you understand what's going on so that the plot can 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 function. In fact, and, and, yeah. and often the plot is like kind of besides the point. It's it's just sufficient that you know like what the character has to do next, so you can understand their their headspace and appreciate like the writing and and the stakes. I guess right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Like every everything exists so that you can understand what is going on in the prose. Well, I it's weird because um I, I the more I think about it, the more I think um that that Wolf is is really sort of um he, he's pulling an echo in in a way, right? Where ec- uh, Umberto Echo um whenever oh, oh. He- <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, like hello, hello, hello. <laughs> no, no. Uh, Umberto Eco. Um, you know, uh, like you read something like Name of the Rose or or, or even Foucault's Pendulum or whatever. Um, you know, Echo isn't really interested in whether you understand his references. Mm. He'll just drop you in there. And and you know, I'll say this that. Echo is also sort of uh, pointing backwards to Borges, and uh, and and I would say Wolf is too. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there's so tons like, of like mirrors and labyrinths and stuff like that in well, Shadow of the Torturer. Yeah, well, well, I'll I'll point out that um, in Name of the Rose and in <laughs> Shadow of the Torturer, we both get a blind librarian. <laughs> Yeah, who is supposed to be Borges because Borges actually uh, was in charge of the the Grand Library of Argentina uh, after the coup uh, happened and uh, eventually went blind as well. So, 
um, both men decided to sort of put uh, Borges mm-hmm. into their works. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, you know, what Wolf thought of Borges other than as a reference, but it, it seems to me that Name of the Rose uh, Echo had some feelings about Borges after the after all that <laughs> that's happened. Uh, yeah, I I think that that's an astute observation, and the way that I would link Echo and Wolf is that they are both very, very situated in the postmodern, but not so much the artistic postmodern of like of like subjectivity and 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 you know a a kind of like free floating idea of of art and experience and and engaging you know on a subjective level with the work, although that is certainly present, but more on the sense that. They are very intensely concerned on like the experience of modernity and what comes what comes after it, like mm-hmm. literally postmodern, where like so much of so much of Wolf feels like extrapolated outward from an understanding of modernity and and kind of like building on building on some of the quirks and contradictions that that arise with modernity and then heightening them and heightening them and heightening them um un, until like you know you you become totally unmoored from from understanding but it doesn't actually matter as mm-hmm. as much and i think i think echo does a lot of the same stuff although there there is an aspect of like more traditional postmodern art in terms of like the reflexivity on, on itself and both wolf and echo love to be like well hold on let's stop and let's stop and scrutinize the text that we are presently within and take like let, let's add an external viewpoint to look at the situation <laughs> that our characters are presently in and like how how might how might a reader interpret this like <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean i i would also say that um that uh wolf adds a, a new wrinkle which is um he he sort of sprinkles uh quite liberally throughout uh, at least in shadow of the torture and and i'm guessing throughout the rest of the work as well like his faith right yeah and and it's really gothic in the sense that this is an earth like i i think i'd mentioned this um in a previous uh chapter you know read along episode but but yeah, you know, like Wolf is really interested in this idea of a of an Earth that has you know become an empire and then fallen, and is sort of like a a post lapse lapse, if you will, hmm. and just the weight of like all those untold centuries, millennia, you know, uh, just how they weigh upon. Uh, you know the 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 Earth that we would know, right? Because this is you know. Earth is Earth. Uh, it's just like super far future. Uh, yeah, we don't even. We're not even sure how far in the future. I, if I were given a guess, given the the fact that the the, the sun is red and bloated, it's faded. Um, one of the the interesting details that if you sort of sift through it uh, is that you can see the stars during the day. Yeah, faintly. Uh, so, so this is like just like a depleted universe. It's just, just sort of on its last legs, but somehow it's still limping along. Things keep, still keep going, and there's sort of like this weird, uh, like just 
oh my god, it's just like a weight that that's all over this this work. That um, I feel like Echo just sort of dismisses that because Echo, I don't know, but he felt very much sort of atheistic, if not you know very modern at the very least in his artistic uh, 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 viewpoints. I think uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just sort of like this re- really weird sort of like <laughs> this world is a tomb, you know, and that's more or less what it is. Yeah. At this point. It's it's like very much a book about living in the sort of five, six years before the apocalypse. Uh, and people are almost like in denial about the fact that their world is about to end. It doesn't seem like anybody's really doing anything about it. Right. Huh. Uh, Seems familiar. So, <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, like that kind of resonated the most recent time I read it with, uh, you know, the sun is literally dying. Uh, they talk about how there's like they've they've turned the moon into an agricultural preserve at one point, but it's like no longer even functional as that anymore. Uh, the rivers are like full of chemicals and toxic and like it's it's a dying earth book. It is like firmly situated in that sort mm-hmm. of subgenre, um, But then the, the, the Catholic stuff um, like Wolf's Catholicism comes through, especially later on um, with this idea of like the conciliador being a presence in the world. That's there to kind of like restore things through uh, like weird confrontations with the present and the past and the present and the future and stuff like that. And it's, it's really strange. It's definitely some of the weirdest, like, like as somebody who grew up in a fairly religious environment, uh, that stuff sticks out to me, but it's also completely different from the way that more traditional or like conservative writers would interact with those ideas. So it, it, it like adds this extra layer of weirdness to the book that I think is really compelling. Where did uh what what happened what happened to uh our our weird Catholics who are weird in an interesting way instead yeah. of weird in in like a weird op ed Rodre or writer way <laughs> maybe Vatican II is to blame I don't know <laughs> it's all it all went to hell when they started facing towards the congregation yeah I tell you what right. they they didn't they, they see Wolf uh, I I wonder would Wolf have been a, a big Latin mass kind of guy he he sprinkles I mean, enough I mean, he Latin. Only, he <laughs> only passed away in what like 2015 uh, 2019 yeah, yeah. Wow, not, not even yeah. that long i mean we could probably could probably find out <laughs> like, like, <laughs> he might have written something about vatican maybe <laughs> perhaps, uh, perhaps we're reading it right now yeah um, as as in as an uh as an interesting uh point uh, he passed away this month uh, in 2019 actually oh. 10 days ago uh, wow. we're recording just so that you know obviously this isn't going to come out the same day but we're recording 10 days uh, after he he died, which was I believe the fourth uh, the thirteenth of um, April. Would it, would so, you so would would you call this a presentiment of our future? Well, I mean, <laughs> given the fact that that most of us are going to die, I, I can't say all of us because I I don't have all that data. But <laughs> death is oh. in all our futures. Oh, no, I, I was just making a joke about recording ten days before it came out. Oh, and, and you yes, decided well, to go to a very gothic place. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, as as well, as a as a, as a uh, atheist uh, of a Catholic flavor, yes, that's <laughs> gothicness is part of me now. So, so 
I'm glad that the Catholicism came up, by the way, because um, and I, I forget if it was Carlo or Jeremy who who made this 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 point about you know his his how present it is in the work. What's interesting to me is that it's so so I. I am not a Catholic. I never was a Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. I was raised uh, Episcopal, but I went um, for a few years to a Catholic boys' school, and so I was around a lot of Catholic stuff. Um, and and so I experienced Catholicism primarily as as a as a competing aesthetic. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it was like where I would go there and I'd be like, well, this is church, but it's church not as I know it. Like it's a little bit <laughs> yeah. of a different church. Um, and I was always struck by the the oldness of everything and the sense of dust and cobwebs and and you know, heavy stained bronze and like it it just it it had a weight that uh, Episcopal, well, some some Episcopal churches had, but they were very Catholic feeling Episcopal churches. Um, and it's interesting to me that I, I feel like Wolf is really in tune with that, and it's it's less, it's at least to me, and maybe this is just what's vibing with me, but the 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 actual Catholic theology feels much more distant to me than the mm-hmm. the Catholic aestheticism. Um, where like, especially stuff like the ceremony where Severian is elevated, um, to a, a journeyman is like, that was the, the, the most Catholic part of the book that I have read so far. I was like, oh, okay. Wow. He's, this is, this is, this is peak Catholicism right here. Um, but it was a very, it was, it was an aesthetic Catholicism. And I suddenly felt like I was back in, you know, an old dusty church watching, like you know, one of those little uh, what, what do they call them? The the Christmas mysteries that they would do, like those little like play things that some some churches the, put the, on around the passion uh, passion yes. plays. Yeah, 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 yeah. The passion plays. And I was like, wow, this just strikes me as just feeling very. It, it just I don't know. It was just aesthetically similar, but at the same time, you don't get that. You you don't get that. You know that Tolkienian. Uh, uh Catholicism of of like the big overarching themes hanging over this story. Like if I didn't know about it, I think I I would not be drawing that connection to his personal faith in the story. Yeah, I do think it's a lot more um obfuscated than like Tolkien. Uh but I think it like especially on reread um, even fairly early on, you start to see little glimmers of like some of, the, I don't even know if I want to call it theology, but like some of the m- mysticism or like metaphysics, uh, that he's playing with that feel very Catholic to me. Um, and it has a lot to do with stuff that hasn't happened yet in like shadow of the torturer. Um, but the, the claw of the conciliator plays a more significant role as the story goes on. And, uh, Severian kind of occupies this interesting, like messianic space. Um, but it's, it's, it is weird. It's never like a straightforward, you know, um, <laughs> here, come, retelling here comes <laughs> Yeah. It's never allegory. It's, but it, it, it feels more like Wolf is himself wrestling with some ideas and he's like writing a book that is engaging with them and their ideas that stem f- like at the root from Catholicism, but are not like necessarily orthodox, if that makes well, sense. I, I, I think that he also, um, 
like like he he inserts uh stuff that's from even you know like the beginnings you know like pre-christian times or, or uh parallel to them like i think it was it the um the the bear tower the the yeah. apprentices of the bear tower mm-hmm. when when they would become journeymen or 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 whatever uh i believe that it's they stand under a grate where uh they they basically um slit a bull's throat and the the blood just sort of like drenches them yeah like like a baptism in blood right yeah and um if you look that up that's from mithraic uh uh uh, ceremonies and mysteries right yeah and you know so the the thing here is that you know, that was one of the biggest like one of the biggest targets for early uh christianity uh was to try to get um sort of roman soldiers who generally uh would follow the the, the cult of mithras um because it was so similar right mm-hmm. so so he's he's drawing on these several like i i've i've even heard uh that he's incorporating even sort of gnostic stuff mm-hmm. into the into the the storyline as well and he's sort of like weaving together like this I think I'd called it previously like almost a concordance, right? The th- those books that would show you, you know, even better than concordance. I would say it's it's like alchemy, right? Where where old old alchemy would be like, yeah, you need to do this scientific thing, but also pray to the angel Gabriel because he's the he's the warden of the west or some shit like that, right? <laughs> where where it sort of melds together science with this uh religiosity. Um, that is almost part, it's, it's just assumed to be part of the science, right? Because mm-hmm. all, all patterns in the world, I think it's, it's one of the lines in the, in the book itself that, you know, the, the, the increate shows his will through, you know, every tiny yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, oh, go, oh, go on, Kurt. Oh, I was going to say a, a lot of times those those digressions in particular, where the story suddenly lapses into kind of like a philosophical discussion about the nature of knowledge or the nature of creation, that feels uh, very much taken from something like like uh, like Augustus or um, or sorry uh, uh, Augustine um, or. Uh, like uh, like like uh, Thomas Aquinas or something. It's that it has that it has that ring of that that kind of like mid period early late early church writing where it's this kind of blend of yeah like proto scientific thought where they're like well if this is true about God and this is true about creation yeah. then what do these what how how do these ideas interface and it's like how can yeah. I how can I understand not not necessarily understand the world but like understand how I should perceive the world in light of these these deeply held uh, beliefs although it's complicated I think by the fact that at least. For where we are in Shadow of the Torturer, we we know essentially nothing about the orthodoxy of anyone in 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 the book mm-hmm. so far. Like like we we hear the pan creator invoked, and we've heard these kind of somewhat high minded discussions about it. But but you know we we have never really seen the performance of religion or gotten like a good idea of like what the actual doctrine that anyone follows is. Apart from like the the autark seems. 
like a semi, you know, godhead type figure. And, and we, we know that there is some kind of like a demiurge type figure of, of some sort. Get, getting back to your point about the presence of Gnosticism, but nobody is like, there are six commandments of the pan mm-hmm. creator. What are they, Severian? It's like, well, no, no, no. We, we get stuff about, you know, the seven aspects of good governance, but, but nobody <laughs> has been especially inclined to, you know, preach to us of what, yeah. what people in this world believe. Yeah, I mean, we we get that that brief uh, glimpse of the the pelerines, but then that's it. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's not even clear at this point in the story how orthodox they are. They people seem to treat them a bit a bit strange. Yeah, um, I think that that isn't that I though ties into I think a larger theme in Wolf's world building generally, like not just in in Book of the New Sun, but in everything of his I've read where uh, he doesn't necessarily tell you anything. He gestures towards things, right? Like his characters are swimming in their world. And as fish don't point out the ocean, they don't necessarily point out the things that they take for granted. And -hmm. that can make for a very frustrating reading experience if you want to like know, you know, what is the religion in this world? How does this weird society govern itself like what who's in, actually in charge of the torturers who is sending these people to be tortured but it doesn't matter to severian and he never thinks about it because he's well one he's kind of a moron but two <laughs> uh he also knows what his function is and he just does fulfills his function and he he does like ponder these larger questions and that's when we get gestures towards what might be the orthodoxy when he like thinks of things or when other people invoke ideas that sound like, you know, understood uh, theology or understood metaphysics or whatever. Um, but it's never spelled out for us. And that's interesting. It's like an, it's an interesting decision that Wolf makes to do that. And it's part of why I think uh, it's refreshing for me to read Gene Wolf uh, because I get tired of reading fantasy novels and science fiction novels where the author feels the need to like explain how everything works and make sure that I can see all the like cool world building that they did before they started the books. Uh, <laughs> look, look yeah. they, they, they took months filling out that world Bible and you're yeah. going to read all about it, Jeremy. Well, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I'm in the mood for that, but not always. It's, yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it's fine. I, I think, I think it's fine in, in, in moderation, you know, as with everything. Yeah. To, to that point, Jeremy, what I like about it is that, you never know quite where to categorize world detail when you get it, right? Because mm-hmm. this is kind of like an inversion of the whole, you know, any uh, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from from, from magic or, or not, not quite quite an inversion, but it's it exists in that same continuum where it's like we don't know the delineating line between belief in the supernatural and belief in a technology. So when somebody mm-hmm. starts telling you that, uh, you know, I, I had this experience when um, uh, Severian winds up being saved by the claw of the conciliator being on his body. When mm-hmm. you first hear about it, it's described as a religious relic and you're kind of like, oh, okay, it's a religious relic. Therefore, it must not work. Because it's just it's it's an object of belief and not of 
technology. And then it turns out that it does work. And now you've, you realize that you've perhaps made a category error. If these are indeed even separate categories, like if there is an alien Jesus, maybe alien <laughs> Jesus could really do all those things, or yeah. maybe it's exaggerated, but it's not, it's not clear what the scope and what the domain are. And so it's not clear what things are part of their religion and what things are part of, are part of their world. And, Severian yeah. may not know either. And it's that's very different from, I think, the usual approach to discussing religion and belief in uh in in fiction, in you know, like other uh second world uh fiction. Well, I guess this isn't I guess this isn't even technically second world, although it may as well be. Um <laughs> of of being like, well, this is the setting and this is what they believe. But this is a very medieval version of of belief where science and technology sorry, uh science and religion are still essentially one to them. They they believe all this stuff to be literally true. And because we don't have an objective viewpoint on it, we must believe them both to be true, or we're just gonna constantly be surprised. And it's like, oh, that was real and not for play. <laughs> yeah. And another like one of the ways that Wolf creates that headspace for us, I think, is with his use of all these weird terms for things that like you think they mean one thing and then they mean something else. Like, and I think the first chapter there's mentioned that Vodalus has a pistol and you're like expecting it to be a firearm. And then it's like, no, it's like a laser gun. Yeah. And then like there are destriers, which are horses, but they're not horses. They're something well, yeah, else. They're, 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 they're war horses specifically uh, like the heavy, like the ones that, that uh, a knight would need. Right. Because yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They need to carry, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that that's the same thing as, you know, like uh, all the uh, creatures that are, that he's using um, like these prehistoric uh, Latinate or, mm -hmm. or Greek um, nomenclatures for creatures, which, it does, uh, you know, in, in my estimation, it does two things. One, it uh, it alienates you from exactly what that thing is, mm -hmm. and two, gives you hints um, that maybe time is fucked up in this world. <laughs> because, like, like I mean, to be honest with you, like, let me put it to you this way: Did you ever read? Um, there was a Marvel 1602, I think it was, uh, the, the, like a limited series where Neil Gaiman did like a, he did like a, a weird, um, 1602 version of Marvel characters where, you know, you get, uh, you know, Dr. Strange is, is actually is, is, uh, is it Francis Bacon? The, the yeah, something uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. The father of science. So, so th one of the things that happens throughout that uh, series, which ran, I think it was like four issues, um, is that you find these little like weird, almost like uh, Usagi Jojimbo-esque um, little mini dinosaur type creatures, right? They, they, they crop up in different places and whatnot. And you're like, what the fuck is going on here? And then you realize that the... Um, the almost uh, Brave New World uh, noble savage character that becomes basically that version, uh, that, that world's version of Captain America is actually from the future. And that time has gotten all fucked up because, you know, time travel exists. And so the, the, the fabric of time is sort of riddled with holes. And then you're like, 
oh, that's why all those little dinosaurs would show up. Okay, that's why. And mm-hmm. so it, I, I always felt, you know, throughout the book as I was reading, I was like, wait, is there time travel happening here? What the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. are they... Are these genetically recreated creatures? Are they just brought in from past time periods? What What's going on? What exactly is happening? Yeah. Yeah. And and another thing I think is interesting is kind of t- to what Kurt was talking about with like the claw of the conciliator does stuff, even though, you know, it seems to be a religious object and we kind of have to occupy a headspace where the line between, you know, technology and and religious power is sort of blurry it's like in this world they've they you know in the medieval world uh nobody knew anything like well that's not true but like knowledge was much more limited and so um there wasn't the same like distinction between okay well this i know from the scientific method so i can trust it more like concretely and this is more nebulous and religious and then uh that's where we are now but in the book of the new sun earth they're like looped back around where they have such a high level of technology where like maybe the claw of the conciliator is just a piece of technology that does weird stuff and like brings Mm -hmm. you back to life uh but it occupies this religious space and it does the things that the religion says it does so it seems to actually also be like a blessed object or like a, a relic of some kind. Mm. Um, well, and mean, that like further destabilizes your understanding of the setting. Cause yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's both. I think Kurt had, uh, had mentioned it um, not, not here, but in the previous uh, recording uh, session that um, this both sort of like both does the, uh, a canticle for Leibowitz thing, but, also, um, to to the previous points about like um, the the you know sort of like late late ancient world thinkers, where you're you're basically you've come across Aristotelian and you know uh, logic um, or, or you know what have you, and you're applying that and melding it with Christianity to then use logic to create rhetoric basically like like religious rhetoric specifically mm-hmm. and how to and, and a system of ethics based on that religiosity right um and i i feel like it, th- that's the one thing that like nessus to me uh feels very much like uh sort of like the, the the idea of king the kingdom of heaven right as above so below uh, but something's fucked up, right? So, so, <laughs> so Nessus isn't exactly, it's, it's sort of deviated in some way, shape or form from the, you know, the, the increate or the pancreator or what, you know, whatever the, the, the five different names that <laughs> Wolf uses in this, uh, it's yeah. deviated in some way, shape or form. And the only thing that can sort of set it back aright is, you know, the, the rebirth of, of the new sun, right? Um, but, but, you know, and and so you, you do get like these weird, um, flourishes where, you know, like, oh yeah. So, uh, you know, like the beginning of the book begins with like, you know, this weird, uh, action scene, but then later Severian says, oh yeah, I almost drowned. Did, do you know that? I, I, I I almost (laughs) died. And you're like, wait, what? And then you realize, oh, 
oh, he, he was sort of like, that's like a weird baptism because that's exactly what happens, right? You're supposed to be born again into, and, and the, the vehicle that you use is water. Uh, it's Guile's water, which is filthy, but you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, uh, I guess the uh the next thing we could probably talk about is so um maybe you know what maybe we should ask Kurt what he thinks is going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> so Yes. Okay, so um I I'm of two minds. On the one hand, um so uh, okay, my my two theories are one, he gets to Thrax. And two, he doesn't get the Thrax. Um, now, now those because <laughs> they're pretty all-encompassing that, theories. Yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. That, yes, yes. Playing play the a, odds, are we? This is a bit yeah. of this is a bit of a, of a tautology, but I, I actually think that these are two distinct paths that it could take. Because obviously, if he gets the Thrax, he continues along the path that has been laid for him, and we presumably get more torturer politics and more stuff. Right? We get more engagement with the structures of the world as he knows it. But at the same at the same level, I believe in kind of that little like uh, that kind of almost afterward that Severian puts to the first section. He talks about kind of like journeying outward and how it's a hard road and they're going all these different places. And I, I kind of get the impression that the book could alternately go not to Thrax at all, but go totally off the map into some of this wilderness area that has been hinted at throughout the course of the book. And I'm inclined to think it's going to go more towards the wilderness area because so far nobody has accomplished a single goal that they have set out to, to, to accomplish in a normal way. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just imagining like, like, like uh, Severian looking at his little to-do list and like one tier. Well, I mean, he's basically, none of them are checked. He's basically like, playing like a Skyrim or Fallout game and he's got at the top of his quest list, he's got the main quest and he's like, you know, I think I'm going to do all these subquests, these side quests <laughs> instead. I don't think I want to do the main quest actually. <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that because my read on it is not that Severian is getting distracted. It's more that like, again, this is kind of bringing in the Catholic thing again. Providence is yanking Severian around all over the place, right? Mm. Like, he sets out from the Citadel fully intending to just beeline to Thrax, but then he go he wanders into a situation where, like, uh, the um, Castellan or whatever, the guy who's, like, in charge of the guard tells mm-hmm. him, you should probably get a different mantle so people don't freak out because you're a torturer. As you get further away from the Citadel, people will be less and less comfortable with that. And so he's like, oh, I should get a mantle. And then he just walks into, like the worst thrift store in the world. <laughs> and- the, the, the one, the one thrift store that, it, that has been like running a fucking scam to, yeah. to basically kill and then uh, uh, take up whatever the, the, the remains, you know, whatever riches that poor bastard had. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and, but, but then that just derails him for the rest of the book is just like dealing with, um, you know, Adia and Agilis and, all and their dumb scheme and like then like there is some him getting distracted you know through that section but it's all like if he never met them then the rest of the series wouldn't happen it would just be him walking to thrax and being the carnifex in thrax um but instead like he finds the claw of the conciliator and like 
kind of meets Baldanders and and Doctor Talos and like gets involved in all their nonsense. And 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 when when they go to get the Avernus, he finds Dorcas. Which yeah, he then finds Dorcas. Adds another yeah, adds another complication. It, you know, it's you're you're right. I, I think Jeremy about it being Providence, but at the same time, Severian certainly seems open to being moved by Providence. Right? Like he yeah. never he never insists. Like he he says it, but he never actually follows through. He's like, no, I've got places to be, but he's never actually like, fuck this. I need to go. Um, right. He's like, oh, okay, fine. We'll go and do, you know, this, whatever ridiculous crap you're insisting. Okay, fine. I will play my <laughs> role as death in the play that goes on all, all, all evening. He could have just been like, oh, fuck these guys. No, we're going to go Dorcas. We're going to go around. them. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. He's totally like suggestible, right? If somebody says, Hey, we should go to that garden over there. Or like we should check out this thing. He'll he'll be like, all right, let's go check it out. <laughs> or you know, um, he doesn't have a lot of driving motivation. And there's so there's an interesting thing too, uh, where I almost feel like Severian, being an unreliable narrator, hides a lot of the reasons he agrees to do these things. Or like he doesn't want he doesn't really explain himself to us. He's just sort of narrating it, but he wants to present himself in a certain light. And I think he wants to present himself as guided by providence as like mm-hmm. this is all happening on accident and it's and it's bringing me into the position of, of like of, of what he will become by the end of the series well i mean but but isn't that really i mean it, it's fascinating because on on the one hand i i want to believe that yes he is completely like uh, suggestible and you know there is this providence and even even though the end of the book sort of hints at this sort of like uh does a gesture towards free will that you know well you know if if you want to you know take off and not continue that's fine uh but but at the same time um it's it's such a political thing right because he's he's also narrating this from the future yeah, and he's it's it's consummate poli- you know po- consummate politics to sort of uh, present yourself as having almost a mandate uh, from heaven, shall we say? Yeah, um, <laughs> I was literally uh, destined to become what I am, right? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. I didn't seek it out; it just sort of happened to me. Although, well, yeah, I mean. Although Severian is a very poor propagandist in that sense, because he literally gives a, a chapter long aside where he was like, where he's like, let's consider the fact that I'm writing these memoirs. And let me give yeah. you an example of a different autarch's memoir and of the way that it might be interpreted and the way that, that the story is framed to influence the way you interpret it and, and how the scholars will look at this and say, well, but he, you know, the autarch did this because of rules or the autarch did this because of religious providence. So he's definitely yeah. like, he's like, wait, 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 let me call attention to the fact that you shouldn't believe me, but also you should believe me. <laughs> he is well, intentionally I, confusing you, right? Well, like, also, I, I also think that it's, he's like Wolf- Wolf perhaps being, um, you know, uh, American. Uh, one of <laughs> Amer- one of the American American. Um, one of the things that we here in America respond to is not just a a mandate, right? But also the reluctant. Mm-hmm. leader the one that oh you know it, it's funny because that's exactly like like um if, if you've ever listened to a citations needed episode where they're talking about like oh you know the u.s 
stumbles into war or whatever. <laughs> yeah. The, the phrasing sounds exactly similar to how he, like he ends the, I think it's even the first chapter. He backs himself mm -hmm. into the throne. He stumbles like, backwards into the throne. Whoopsie doodle. I just yep. happened mm -hmm. to become the all powerful autark. I Whoops. accidentally did it. Uh, but, but even like from the pretty early on, he doesn't ever really give us a motivation for anything he does. Like he, he, he is motivated early by like getting the coin from Vodalus and thinking Vodalus is cool. But all of his motives after that point have to do with just thinking a girl is hot, right? <laughs> it's well, he's I like mean, the it, ultimate everyman. He's just like, I, I thought Thecla yeah. was pretty hot, so I did a bunch of stuff because I of, thought of that. I thought I thought it was a joke, but apparently that's the guiding principle when uh I think it's Gurlos and, and Palamon tell him, you know, like your childhood is before you and your manhood is in front. And he was like, <laughs> Yep, that's that's what he's yep. following. Yep. <laughs> but is he is he really though? Because like again, I am constantly suspicious of when Severian tells me why stuff is happening because he's yeah. like, he's not very forthcoming about any of his own actual internal thoughts aside from these weird philosophical asides that feel very propaganda-y, right? So like, I think Wolf is very clever in the just the way the whole book is narrated to create that sense of of like, I can buy into this and accept mm -hmm. that Severian is like a destined messianic figure almost like plucked from obscurity by random circumstance uh, or the hand of God, depending on what you want to believe to become the autark eventually. Or I can read this as like, he saw opportunities and took them. Right. Mm -hmm. But he never really describes himself as seeing an opportunity and taking it. He right. portrays well, I mean, himself as a moron. Yeah. I, I mean, also I think that that's, that leads into, I mean, that, that sort of, I think supports my, my theory of like the reluctant, like I, I have made the claim before uh, that this sounds like uh, whenever the um, like in, in, in the new Testament, the apostles sort of like, you know, basically, you know, talk, talk themselves in, in you know, talk about themselves like they're, they're idiots, right. Mm -hmm. To, to basically show, Oh, well, see Jesus, Jesus, he's great. Um, you know, we were idiots, but Jesus, oh my goodness, he he was the good one. Um, but, yeah, but he's, also, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying he's yeah, and 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 also he's very adept at giving things that are unhelpful spoilers, right? Like, <laughs> like he he gives us a spoiler that colors the way that we read the story, but doesn't actually inform us anymore. And it reminds me very much of, um. I went to summer camp one year when I was about, I don't know, 14 or 15, and I borrowed Catch-22, uh, the Joseph Heller novel, mm -hmm. one of my favorite novels, uh, from a friend of mine who gave it to me. And as he gave it to me, he said, you need to understand that everyone except for Yasarian is dead at the beginning of the book. And I was like, what? <laughs> And 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 it it completely colored my reading of the novel because I was constantly <laughs> waiting for something to happen or to understand what this meant, but it didn't actually reveal anything about the plot of 
of the book because the type yeah. of book it is, it's just kind of, kind of like very discursive and it's very like weird, weird episodes and filled with the sides. Actually, actually kind of in some ways like this book and in some very loose ways, not, not really. Um, but it, it's, it's a spoiler that changed my experience of hearing the story and reading the story, but didn't actually make me any more wise or any more informed about what's happening. And Severian does that constantly as a narrator. Mm-hmm. He's like, I got to tell you that this is about to happen to me. And it's like, well, that it was, it was true, but I, I still don't know anymore about what's going on. <laughs> well, I mean, then, then there's the, the, the weird omissions, right? Because like, uh, so, so we get like this whole, oh, Thecla. Oh my goodness. She's, she's so beautiful. I was immediately in love with her. But then we get the, um, the warning from Gurlos who tells him, yeah, you can't. You can't sleep with her. So you, you're left to assume that, yes, he did not do any of those things. But then later on, you're like, wait, he did sleep with her. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> or, and there's or, other or things just, like. Or, or just, or just the, the, the little asides like, oh, she reminded me, um, when Agio leapt at my face, like a, like a harpy, yeah. you know, it just reminded me of that time that Thecla, all those times that Thecla would like go wild and try to tear my <laughs> eyes out. And you're like, right. that was a great time. <laughs> you're like, yeah. what? What the yeah. fuck? <laughs> like he, it's interesting. It almost feels like what Wolf is going for is like Severian is losing track of his own lies or he's losing track of what he hasn't written about like and and so the reality uh, uh, the true memories are seeping in in these like ways of relating or of him trying to like explain what something was like or relating an experience he's having to something that had happened to him before but forgetting mm-hmm. that he never told you about that <laughs> yes yes it's it, it's great it, i mean it, it's confusing as fuck but uh, it is fantastic because you're like wait what yeah. Hold on. <laughs> and and so um one of the things that um if I can step back and and talk about like the idea of time being sort of weird. And and granted, you know, this is going to be a, a weird thing because he's narrating uh, himself from a future uh, I mean, there's several levels. Like, Wolf is supposedly translating this from a future that he received the document <laughs> from. Yeah. Who then is the document itself is written from a future time where Severian is already the autarch. Uh, and he's narrating about himself as a teenager. And, and to be fair, like, I feel like a lot of the, the weirdness of those early chapters do completely feel like a teenager, right? Like, like you, 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 you're not fully formed. You don't have a real coherent idea of who you are or the, what the world is. So, so a lot of those chapters don't feel very connected to each other. But, but then you, you get this idea of, uh, like like the the time has gone weird and it makes me think of uh that uh chapter in the watchman where we get the perspective of of dr manhattan and moore's entire uh like his his intention in that was to yeah this is Basically, <laughs> you get you get to experience do, uh, how Doctor Manhattan feels time is because you can page back and forth and check other chapters. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. April twenty sixth, nineteen seventy one. I'm down bad for the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It's December twenty first, nineteen sixty three. I'm down bad for the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, <laughs> and so on and so forth. 
<laughs> Not we that fi- different from Severian, really. Exactly. We yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we fished we fished a a a, a mud spattered blonde haired girl, uh, full breasted, uh, out of the out of the uh, the waters of the Garden of Eternal Sleep. I'm down bad again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, t- time definitely becomes more and more of a thing as the books go on. Um, and in the, I feel like in Shadow of the Torturer, there's a lot of things that Wolf hints at. He's like priming you for like, oh, yeah, there's going to be some time stuff. We're going to go all over the place in time as we go forward. Uh, and also like people going to be coming back from the dead a lot. Well, right. I mean, we already we already have Mel Rubius, who uh, we're unsure. Well, Mel Rubius and Triskel, the yeah. dog, who uh, eventually come back several times in Shadow of the Torture, yeah, um, and, and seem real um, to to Severian, uh, but but also like just basically, uh, uh, what was it like? Like the whole sequence where he goes to the atrium of time, shall we say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I keep on, I keep on thinking of Valerian. Like, was did he like do a, like like are those tunnels that he traveled like time tunnels? What what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah, and and also uh, Dorcas, right? Probably was dead. Almost certainly. Well, yeah, was yeah. Dead. I mean, uh, th- that that's that's the obvious hint. I, I I remember it was it was delicious. Kurt didn't catch it, and he's like, "Oh shit, he snaked her!" <laughs> because yeah. the old man is like, "Yeah, my my old my 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 wife Cass. I'm looking for her." And blah blah. <laughs> and, and you're like, Cass door Cass. Uh, hmm. I don't know. It seems rather convenient that they both share the last syllable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. but, but I mean, also like, um, uh, can, can we talk real briefly about, uh, how worlds, um, factor into all of this? Sure. How, how what does worlds W W H O R L. Oh yes. Certainly. Spirals or what have you. Yes, certainly. So, so if I'm not mistaken, was is the entire uh universe the known universe is called a whirl right in in uh in book of the new sun but then we also get like these descriptions like ulten his reading habits started basically well i started from the center and i started outward in this long oh, spiral yeah yeah which is also the system yeah. that that uh dorcas's who we assume is dorcas's uh past husband uh, is also doing where he would start at one point and he's like, Oh, they move. So I started spiraling outward (laughs) and it's like, Mm -hmm. "Hmm." me, me doing the, uh, the, the butterfly in the hand meme going, is this Junji Ito's Uzumaki? (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's yeah. There's it's what's what I like about this, this story is that there's a lot of motifs like that. Like, yeah. I, and that, that didn't even occur to me until you mentioned it. Um, And of course, you know, like the Milky Way is itself as, you know, a, a spiral Mm -hmm. or really many spirals. Um, And on the one hand, it's there for you to plumb, you know, with your smart brain or at the other hand, on the other hand, you could just be like, yeah, I'm just going to read this. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's no, it's not, it's not a story that requires you to invest thought into, you know, picking it apart. Like it is, 
it is a soup that you can both enjoy looking at the bones from which the soup was made to 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 paraphrase Tolkien, or mm-hmm. you can just eat the soup and it's delicious in both respects. It n- neither spoils the other. Yep. And Wolf even tells us that at one point when uh, we have is that one of the Malrubius like shows up things where he talks about there's the you can look at the cow and the farm and look at it like the farmer and just it's it is objects or you can look at it and see how it connects to everything else in the world. Or you can see it in this like transubstantial way where you see how it represents oh, the oh, will oh. of God. Yeah, yeah. That was um, where he's oh, talking no, to Dorcas. Yeah, he's talking he, about Severian, writing, right. He's talking about like the, the what is it, the different levels of of uh, being able to interpret, you know, reality. Yeah, but then, yeah and but he's, then he's of telling course, us this, this is how this book is, right? Yes, yes. I was like, holy shit, this is the fucking guide to the fucking book, isn't it? Yep. Can, can um, I just say though that um so I'm always hesitant to be like you could never publish a book like this today. I do think <laughs> it would be rather hard to publish a book like you know what it, it may have be. been very hard in 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 1980 too though. I I you know I I can't say that it was it, it wasn't a long shot then too, but this is exactly the sort of story that A I would like more of and B I imagine is extremely hard to get published now because like I, I have to imagine every single one of these uh, these ambiguities would get you know an editorial note on it of like you know can we can we explore this a bit more and make it a bit more concrete or also yeah. like why is why does the re- why is the reader supposed to care about this this to me is something that I feel is is very often lost in when people talk about like what makes sci-fi and fantasy work is. Yeah. Like it, it, Jeremy, you had the great point early on that like it's re- he's just a style and voice forward writer, and he succeeds or fails on the strength of that, and not on like well we're invested in Severian because Severian needs to I don't know you know get his dog back or save or meet <laughs> meet his mom or something like it's just yeah, no it's just it's just interesting and you want to read more because it's fascinating. It's almost in a way. This is a stupid idea. This is a this is an end of the podcast I, I, idea. After I've <laughs> I've been drinking a large beer, it kind of plays out on the prestige TV uh, model, where it's like we're going to make it interesting, and it you're just going to want to keep watching episodes of it, and we're not necessarily going to give you a clear stakes. It's just going to be interesting on a moment to moment basis. Exactly. So as somebody who uh, has been through the editorial process and tries to put this kind of not, you know, not on the level of Wolf, but some of this like ambiguity of this character might not be being forthcoming or like there are asides here that aren't exactly clear in, in how they connect to everything else. Uh, it is hard. Like that is hard to get through. Uh, and you do get exactly the kind of note you're describing where it's like, why, why does this matter? Or how does like, w- you know, could this be cut and would anything be lost <laughs> to the narrative? And and my reaction to that is always like, yeah, you could get rid of this. Like you could cut a lot of the book of the new sun and you would still have a coherent narrative. Right. Um, but I wouldn't want to read that book because I don't actually want to read about like Severian wandering yeah. around Nessus getting into weird problems. I want to read about like these, I, I'm here for the weird asides and for the being challenged to interpret it. And for the like question of what is going on here, even at the level of the narration and Severian hiding things and, and 
slipping details on accident and stuff like that. Um, but that's not, you know, and, and I think it probably was hard to get stuff like that published back in the day. I think you just have to be really good at it and you have to find like an audience that wants to read that stuff and you have to be good enough to do it well. Like mm-hmm. imagine if you were reading book of the new sun and constantly frustrated because these asides were not interesting. Oh yeah. You know, <laughs> it would be insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Uh, book of the new sun, just full of like uh, pop references. Yeah. 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 A- and quippy dialogue. Book of the new sun. Epic. Epic bacon meme edition, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to ruin it for anyone else, but uh, <laughs> but I, I may I may think about that for a bit uh, and, and ruin my own evening. Um, so, Jeremy, uh, speaking of editorial processes and uh, and 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 so on, you seem to have a book out and one on the way, right? Yes, uh, I have one book out, one coming out in August, and then a third one that's about halfway done, probably. Uh, so the first one is Hand of the Sun King, which was published by Glantz in uh, August of last year, and Jabberwocky Literary, my agency, is sort of helping me self-publish it in the U.S. Uh, so it's available, you know, wherever books are available. And then uh, The Garden of Empire is the second book, the sequel, which is coming out in August again. Uh, from the same people. Uh, and if you like reading the book of the new sun and you enjoy how Severian is sometimes lying to you and isn't a very good person, but kind of wants you to like him anyway, you might enjoy my books because that's <laughs> a way of describing my protagonist, at least in the first book. He's kind of a, kind of a moron, but he's a very like articulate <laughs> moron. Excellent. The, the best kind of moron. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. Yes. All right. Um, so, uh, Jeremy, thanks again for, for deciding to come with us and and talk a little bit about uh, your own experiences reading Book of the New Sun and Gene Wolfe and so on and so forth. Uh, Kurt, uh, thanks again. And um, I do want to thank everyone listening in. And we'll catch you next time here on Podside.